You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. All right, I'm Aaron Halstead, content manager and editor of PreachingSource.com. Not in the studio today replacing Dr. McCarty, uh, because I'm the one interviewing Dr. McCarty today. Uh, As you all are aware, Dr. McCarty is a professor of preaching and rhetoric here at Southwestern Seminary. Yeah, he is the fabulous host of this very own podcast and a good friend of mine. Dr. McCarty, it's good to have you in the studio today. It's a pleasure to be on this side of the microphone today, Aaron. Thank <laughs> All right, you. well, uh, today we're going to be uh, discussing 10 people you should thank God for every time you open an English Bible. All right. Which I'd... is something that you have said around me. Uh, Dr. McCarty, who are those 10 people? All right. They, they are three Bible translators, a textual editor, two printers, two kings, and two monks. Okay. Uh, three Bible translators. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll start there. Uh, who are those three Bible translators, and, and why should we be thankful for them? All right. Well, first of all, the, the three Bible translators for uh, the English Bible were necessary because in uh, medieval England, the language of the Bible was Latin, which was the only authorized Bible, was Latin Vulgate. It was the Bible of the official church all over the world. And the problem is it was only understood by a small educated elite. So late in the 14th century, uh, Wycliffe and other Bible translators, other reformers sought to translate the Bible into English so that ordinary people could read the Bible for themselves. Uh, But church authorities regarded that as heresy because it threatened the role of the clergy in interpreting Scripture. So these first Bibles, many of them were burned and their translators persecuted. First one is is John Wycliffe. Uh, He makes the first full translation of the Bible into English sometime in the 1370s. Wycliffe was an Oxford theologian. Uh, and this, this was a massive step forward. Uh, the weakness of it is it was a translation of the Latin Vulgate into English, but at least the, the people have an English Bible in their hands. So that's the first of the three translators that we owe a great debt to. Uh, the second one is William Tyndall, and Tyndall has the distinction of being the first to publish a printed edition of the English New Testament, and it's the first to be translated directly from the Greek text. Uh, He did that in 1526, Uh, but again, uh, many of these early Tyndall Bibles were destroyed. In fact, there there are only three of them that first edition Tyndall New Testaments that still exist. Uh, One of them's in Germany, one of them is in the private library at St. Paul's Cathedral, which I have held. I have been, I've had connections there uh, through Canon Giles Fraser, and I've gotten into the private library, and I've been able to actually hold one of three existing Tyndall New Testaments, which I, if I had been caught with that when they were printed, I'd have been burned at the stake, uh, which eventually Tyndall was burned at the stake because of his work. Uh, and then the other one is in the British Library. You, uh, you can actually, if you visit London and go to the British Library in the manuscript room, you can see one of three existing Tyndall New Testaments. But it was illegal. Uh, the New Testaments were printed in Worms, Germany, and they were smuggled back into England, 
in bales of cotton and barrels of flour. Uh, that first edition, the actual page size, isn't much bigger than uh, one of the iPhone Pluses today. <laughs> and Dr. McCarty, I've seen uh, a framed page from a first edition uh, Tyndall New Testament uh, and a portion of um, a portrait of William Tyndale that used to hang by your door in your pastoral study. Uh, how did you come come across and, and come to own uh, that, that uh, page? I've, I bought, I, I own one page. Like I said, there are only three extant, complete Tyndall New Testaments. But because so many of them were torn up and destroyed, there are pages that float around among rare book dealers. And so I was able to purchase a single page of a Tyndall New Testament from a rare book dealer in London. And I I framed it along with a portrait of Tyndall. And in my 22 years of pastoral ministry, I always hung that page and that portrait uh, by the door of my study in the churches that I served, always by the door so that it would face me as I went out to preach each Sunday. And I wanted to be reminded that it cost William Tyndall his life in order to put the Scripture in my native language. Hmm. Well, so that's uh, two of uh, the Bible translators. Who's the third? Uh, the third one is Miles Coverdale, who was a, an associate of Tyndall. Tyndall, before he was burned at the stake, was able to complete the New Testament and the Pentateuch. In fact, one of the requests he made when he was in prison, he was in prison for a year before they martyred him. Uh, But in prison, he asked for a cloak to keep him warm and also asked for his Hebrew grammar uh, so that he could continue his work on the Old Testament. Well, Coverdale completed Tyndall's work and finished the Bible in 1535. He, strangely enough, During this period, translators of the English Bible were persecuted right up to almost the moment that the Bible became legal. And so uh, Coverdale dedicates his complete Bible to uh, Henry VIII, and the king authorizes it. And so Coverdale becomes the first legal Bible in, in England. We ought to remember Tyndall, though, because ultimately when the King James translators uh, they work from the original Greek and Hebrew, but they ended up adopting in the King James New Testament nine-tenths of that language is Tyndall's. So there's a sense in which Tyndall is the father of every English Bible after that. Okay, so we've covered uh, the three Bible translators. Let's move on to uh, the two kings. I'm assuming that King James is one of those. King James the first of England and the sixth of Scotland, yes. The great <laughs> King James Bible of 1611, he would be uh, the first of the two kings. Uh, in 1604, at the Hampton Court Conference, King James uh, doesn't just authorize, but he orders the translation of an authorized version of the Bible. That is, it was approved by the king to be used in all the churches. And uh, King James ordered that a, a, uh, a group of 54 Bible translators be assembled to do the work on the great uh, authorized version. Uh, they worked in six different companies. There were two at Cambridge, two at Oxford, and then two at Westminster. Uh, I've been in—it's not part—it's uh, not open to the public— Uh, But at Westminster Abbey, part of the dean's private uh, residence is uh, a room called the Jerusalem Chamber. 
And in 2011, I was there and through some connections with one of the vergers, and because the dean was on holiday, uh, I was able to go into and visit the Jerusalem chamber, which is the room that the uh, Westminster translators worked in. Uh, the Westminster uh, company was led by Lancelot Andrews, who was the dean of Westminster Abbey then. Uh, and Andrews was a, he is indicative of the remarkable scholars of that age. He spoke 15 modern languages and wow. six ancient ones. Uh, so, it, uh, yes, King James, and I, I've said three Bible translators, you can toss in the 54 that King James <laughs> had working for. But King James would be the first king, and then the second king was uh, not directly associated with the English Bible, but I've got to mention the ninth century uh, English king Al Alfred the Great. And the reason I mention him when we think of the English Bible is that Alfred the Great is the reason that we're speaking English and not uh, Old Norse or Danish or, or French. Uh, Alfred was the king of Wessex. This was before there was a united England. England was a heptarchy. There were seven small kingdoms, and Alfred was the king of Wessex and then later the king of the Anglo-Saxons. He, he really was the great king that began to unite all of these sub-kingdoms of England. And Alfred was uh, passionate about teaching English to the common people. It is Alfred who uh, made sure that the great books of the age were translated into English. It was Alfred who pursued in his reign a vigorous program of primary education of, of common people in English. Uh, also, you might say it was Alfred who, who kept the Vikings from overrunning England. Uh, Alfred fought a number of great battles, uh, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. He fought some of the Vikings. He killed some of them, and the ones he didn't kill, he made treaties with. And the Vikings began to settle in England and eventually were assimilated uh, and became part of the English people. So if you look at a lot of English words, you trace them back, they'll show an old Norse uh, etymology, but uh, there are over a thousand place names in England that are old Norse names because the Vikings came over and settled there and eventually they're incorporated in, into the English people. Uh, a lot of our, even today, uh, many of our common words uh, go back to uh, Alfred's assimilation of the Viking. You, words like both and same, get, give. You look at the etymologies for these English words, they're Old Norse. Uh, even our personal pronoun system changed. They, them, their, those are Old Norse words. So uh, Alfred made sure that the Vikings didn't overrun the country, but then he also assimilated them, and, and they added to the richness of, of the English language. So uh, Al Alfred made the English, English people so proud of the English language that even when the Normans conquered the English uh, in 1066 and the official language of the court became French, uh, the common people still spoke uh, English, and it survived. Um, 
and uh, actually, I know one of the, you're smiling at me because yes. you're thinking about uh, you. You want the little etymology lesson there? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> Give them an education. Well, you're uh, in the history of our words. You can dis- discover our history, and uh, you can see the Norman conquest in the etymology of English words. For example, uh, the the Normans, the lords, spoke French, but the common people, the Saxons, spoke English. So it's going to be the common Saxon who tends the steer, the cow, the sheep. They're the ones taking care of the animals. And so steer, cow, the uh, ox, those are Saxon words. But once their meat is prepared for the table of their Norman lords, the word is beef. That's French. Same thing with uh, calf is a Saxon word, but veal is Norman. Uh, swine, that's a Saxon word. Pork, that's Norman. Uh, deer is an English word, Saxon word. Venison is a French word. So uh, it's interesting that even, even in the etymology, you can see the history there. And, uh, but even though they were dominated by French-speaking Normans, English was so held onto by the common people that even by the 12th century, the children of the no- Norman nobility uh, were having to be taught French in school because their Saxon mothers and nurses, you know, taught them uh, English from the time they were uh, uh, babies. So uh, King James for the great Bible, but Alfred is the one who made it the reality that you and I are speaking English now and we're not speaking Old Norse or French. <laughs> All right. So that covers the two kings. Uh, who is the one textual editor that you think we should thank? Uh, the textual editor is Erasmus of Rotterdam, and, and he was the great human, Catholic, hu- uh, Christian humanist of, of the end of the Middle Ages. Erasmus is, is the first one to publish a printed Greek text of the New Testament. Now, the, in Spain, uh, the, there were some people who could have gotten ahead of Erasmus. There was a polyglot Bible uh, that was actually part of it Erasmus had seen was already been printed. Part of it was printed that had the Bible in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, but they, they were waiting to perfect it and publish the whole Bible at the same time. So Erasmus got the lead on the folks in Spain, and in 1516, he publishes the first printed edition of the Greek New Testament. Uh, now, you, you might, if you're thinking about uh, Gutenberg in the 1450s, say, hey, why is there a 60-year lapse in printing? It's because the type, the fonts, the typefaces uh, for Greek was complicated. It was difficult and expensive to produce it. So there's a, a lag there. They, they had the, the Latin, English, Roman alphabet, but the Greek uh, took a while. And, uh, you know, Erasmus it, it still stayed inside the official Catholic Church. He kept his distance from Luther, from Calvin, from the other Reformers. But the Reformers, Luther, Tyndall, these Reformers, they turned to Erasmus's Greek New Testament to translate the Bible into the language of the common people. So we have to tip our hat to Erasmus. Now, it, I know my... My Greek faculty colleagues was, ah, there were all kinds of problems. Yeah, there were problems with the Erasmus text. He only had a handful of Greek manuscripts, and he back-read parts of the Latin Vulgate into the Greek. Yes, there were problems, but it was monumental that somebody is now printing 
the New Testament in its original language. So our textual editor is Erasmus. All right. So I think that the two printers uh, are the, the next two people that we're going to talk about. Am I right in thinking that Gutenberg is going to be one of those? Yes. You, we owe to Gutenberg the invention of movable type, and uh, his first major production on his printing press is uh, the Latin Vulgate, the Bible, uh, printed uh, some uh, 1450 to 1456, sometime in there. Uh, Gutenberg is, is producing the Latin Bible. And then the other printer that I would note is William Caxton, who uh, was the first uh, English printer. Uh, Caxton learned printing in Europe, uh, and then he comes to England and sets up in the District of Westminster uh, the first English press. So uh, when you say, open your Bible, turn with me and your Bibles too, well, you can't do that unless somebody printed a Bible. So uh, Gutenberg and Caxton are the two printers. All right, so that covers our three Bible translators, our one textual editor, our two printers, our two kings. So all that's left for us are the two monks. So who are they? Well, well, uh, we go back. Uh, now we're going to go back before everyone with the two monks, and, and they're going to be uh, Columba and Augustine of Canterbury. And uh, these were the two monks whose influence was very large in Christianizing uh, the British Isles. Uh, Columba was an Irish missionary monk. Uh, in 563, he uh, landed on the western coast of Scotland and uh, founded the abbey at Iona. This is one of the early Celtic Christian sites. But also monks who were influenced by Columba then started a chain of monasteries across the northern part of, of Scotland and England. Uh, I think Thomas Cahill in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, you know, credits them with not just uh, Christianizing that part of the world, but preserving books and learning and scholarship uh, all the way over to Lindisfarne uh, on the eastern English coast. Those monasteries came from Columba's influence. And then in the south of England in 597, uh, Gregory the Great sends Augustine, not the, the African Augustine, this is the English Augustine, is sent to Christianize uh, the southern part of England. So he lands at Kent in 597, and there he uh, converts the king of Kent. That was one of the heptarchy little kingdoms, Kent, uh, King Ethelbert, who actually had, had married a Christian wife. He married a French uh, Christian princess who brought her own chaplain with her. But, and so that's one of the reasons he receives Augustine uh, with open arms is because his wife is Christian. And so he receives him. Ethelbert is baptized. And, of course, when the king is baptized, everybody's baptized. Uh, <laughs> so that, and that's the reason that the center of English Christianity is Canterbury, is that, that that's where... Augustine landed. So here you have the Romans pull out of England in 330 BC. Uh, and there was some Christian influence because Christians, uh, there, uh, there's a burial chapel. Uh, in fact, St. Martin's Church in Canterbury is the oldest functioning English parish. Uh, from the 330s, there's a burial chapel that was used for Christians who died in England in service in the Roman Legion. Uh, and so the, that burial chapel is there. Well, that's where 
Ethelbert's French Christian princess wife uh, worshipped with her chaplain. And then when Augustine arrives, he enlarges that funeral chapel, and the nave of the church was built by Augustine and 40 monks, and he starts an abbey there. But that Roman, it was the Celtic Christianity uh, that came through Columbus' influence in the north of England with the Roman Christianity through Augustine in the south, and it all blended together, and that's why the British Isles were essentially Christian. So uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to, to these two monks. So uh, every time we English preachers stand up and say to a congregation, turn with me in your Bibles too, we can thank three Bible translators, a textual editor, two printers, two kings, and two monks. All right. Well, our guest today has been Dr. Barry McCarty uh, speaking with us on 10 people we ought to thank God for every time we open up our English Bibles. Dr. McCarty, it's been a pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you. It's, I've been delighted to be on this side of the mic today.